They say the way to a person's heart is through their stomach. But what about your brain and its connection to your gut? We obviously have a cerebral brain, but what we're learning is that our GI tract has a brain of its own. And so the cool thing is that we can influence how that brain operates by our own behavior. That's OSF Healthcare gastroenterologist Dr. Omar Kokar, and I'm Shelley Dankoff, your host of Health Accelerated, brought to you by OSF Healthcare. On today's episode, we take a look at how the brain in your gut is revolutionizing our understanding of the links between digestion, mood, and even the way we think. I want to start off by first of all saying welcome, Dr. Kokar, and then let's get a little background. How did you end up in gastroenterology? Well, first of all, thank you for having me here today. I wish there was something less cliche, but the apple fell didn't fall far off the tree. My father is a GI doc, so it's something that I really grew up around. Sometimes people think gastroenterology, and they don't understand what all that encompasses. You know, they think, oh, I need a colonoscopy, and that might be their lone encounter with you. But it's a really broad range, isn't it? It is. So gastroenterology primarily consists of the digestive tract, which is really everything from top to bottom. And what most people don't realize is that the GI tract is anywhere from 20 to 24 feet long, depending on individual characteristics. And then there's also accessory organs, the liver, the gallbladder, the pancreas. Those are also part of the digestive process. And those also fall under the purview of gastroenterology. And so the majority of what we see in our office is things that people deal with on a day-to-day basis. And what I mean by that is heartburn, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain. Other things that are part of gastroenterology would be any kind of gastrointestinal cancer, whether that's esophageal cancer, gastric cancer, liver, pancreas, colon, those would all be included as well. And then there's inflammatory bowel disease. Everyone's heard of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So it's a very multifaceted, diverse specialty within internal medicine. So let's kind of get into today's topic, the gut and brain connection. The premise being the brain in the gut is revolutionizing our understanding of the links between digestion, mood, health, and even the way we think. You know, I've always heard the way to a guy's heart is through their stomach, right? But this is obviously a lot more thinking process. Tell me about how all of this starts connecting and talking to each other, if you will. It's a great topic. And uh, like I had said earlier, 70% of what we see is abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea. And so a lot of what occurs in our digestive system is a result of what we put into our digestive system. We've all heard the phrase, you are what you eat. Some other phrases that are linked to what we're discussing are, I have butterflies in my stomach. Somebody says, I got a gut feeling about this. So even in our euphemisms that we use socially and daily, they're all referring to this, what we call now, the brain-gut axis. And so what I mean by the brain-gut axis is that we're now learning that we obviously have a cerebral brain, but what we're learning is that our GI tract has a brain of its own. And so the cool thing is that we can influence how that brain operates 
by our own behavior. Okay, so when you say behavior, I'm guessing you mean by what we ingest, what we do, how we think, how we feel, all of that? Well, I would say what you eat leads to digestive processes. And the cutting edge in GI at the moment is something called the gut microbiome. We know that we are colonized by bacteria, primarily in the small bowel. And those bacteria are very beneficial. But when they're out of balance, that's when we lead to digestive issues. And so the question now is, what is the composition of that microbiome? What is the best way to sustain a healthy microbiome? And I'm guessing no two people are exactly alike. That's actually really interesting that you mentioned that because they're looking currently at microbiome signatures. And there's talk that that might even be more individualized than your fingerprints. Wow, that's interesting. So one food for you may not be the best food for me. Absolutely. And anybody who lives in a family or a relationship knows that. Right. So what are some of the foods, you know, we always tell people you should be eating healthy or you should be eating more fruits and vegetables and all of that type of thing. So what are those foods that are doing a better job with these microbiomes? So when it comes to diet, here's the advice that a gastroenterologist will give their patients. Eat on the outside of the grocery store. And what I mean by that is if you can, try to avoid eating something that comes out of a wrapper, out of a box, out of plastic, out of a can. What do I mean by that further? Instead of eating the applesauce, eat the apple. Instead of eating the potato chip, eat the potato. What was natural and what is not natural? And everyone listening should think about what they ate today, where it came from. Was it local? Was it processed in a factory stateside or not stateside? Multiple preservatives were added to it. And so look at the wrapper. It's not just sugar and corn syrup. There's 16 things after that. And who knows what each individual person is reacting to when you eat something like that. I imagine in some of your work, when you have people who come in who are struggling, they are having an issue, it's like a puzzle for you, isn't it? You have to start taking things away before you can bring them back in. Is that kind of how the process works? Yeah, and some puzzles are simpler than others. Sure. You will have the college student who eats steak and shake and has diarrhea. That's the 20-piece puzzle. (laughs) That's a simple one. But then you've got the very diligent 40-year-old female who exercises, does yoga, maintains a good body weight, but still has diarrhea and bloating, and that's a bit trickier. And then so we have to do a a deeper dive. And so generally speaking, what the patient and I will agree to is let's start simple. Let's go 48 hours, let's go 72 hours, and let's completely alter what you're putting in. A lot of times that will change their symptoms. Then it becomes a guessing game. Now, what were you putting in before that was causing symptoms? And we are learning a lot more about disaccharide deficiency. We're learning about sucrase deficiencies. We're learning about all these advanced enzymes that are used for digestive processes that may be not optimally in your body. And then when you eat things, it it can't process. 
And then you get symptoms. Farmer's markets. Those are the places you should be going to, like you said, locally sourced things. So the people who are listening who go, oh, but I want to go to my favorite fast food restaurant because it's easy, it's fast, and it's inexpensive. Because sometimes eating on the outside of the grocery store is not the least expensive place to eat, is it? That's a great point, and that's a different capitalistic conversation beyond the scope of this conversation. But what I will say to that is take the bread from the farmer's market and see how long that lasts. It goes hard pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the applesauce potato chip analogy that I made earlier where eat something that's not preservative. And you'll see the difference. The bread doesn't last very long. Yeah, it's almost like you have to make daily shopping trips. It's like the old days where people had their neighborhood stores because you went and picked up, you know, our grandmothers picked up the food they needed for the meal that day. And there was something to be said for that because, yeah, I'm guessing the loaf of bread probably sitting on my shelf right now has been there a little bit of time. And it eventually will go bad, but you're right. How long has it been sitting there and how much stuff did they put in there? That's an excellent point you bring up that at the altar of convenience, which really started probably in the 1970s or so, we are sacrificing something for that convenience. And you take my generation, for example, we are, I think we're Gen X at this point. We have cancer at an earlier age than the generation before us. And the reason for that is thought to be we grew up on juice boxes, granola bars, Capri Sun, fruit roll-ups. I shouldn't single things out, but that's what comes to mind The generation before us didn't have those things. They ate apple slices. So I think that's a big part of it. Are you seeing it more prevalent in, you know, male or female, or is it equal across the board? Generally speaking, it's more female predominant, and that's because females have a number of anatomical and physiologic distinguishing features. They have a a wider pelvis. They have more parts inside the pelvis. There's less space for the colon to get situated and move around. And so females are generally more predisposed to microbiome and irritable bowel syndrome conditions. Yeah, so you brought up the younger generation. So how early are we seeing like the the colon cancers and pancreatic cancers, some of those things that I do feel like there's greater attention? And is it one of those, oh, we're just diagnosing better, or is it truly a greater preponderance of the cases? I think it's both. I think it's... We have better technology to diagnose sooner, but there certainly does anecdotally appear to be an increasing incidence of malignancy in a lower and lower population, which is why the recommendation for colon cancer screening recently changed from 50 to 45 to account for 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds, even 20-year-olds. They may not necessarily have cancer, but a colonoscopy performed on them for diarrhea or bleeding or something else we will find a precancerous lesion much more frequently now than we did before. And again, part of that could be because we're doing colonoscopies more often. But there definitely seems to be something more prevalent in the, in the younger and younger decades of life. And, and the message there is it's very treatable if you catch it early, is it not? It's literally nipping it in the bud. That's what we do during a colonoscopy. We see a polyp. We can use a number of tools to remove that polyp. Once that precancerous tissue is no longer inside your body, obviously you can get cancer. So back to the food and the gut and the brain connection, how does that conversation go with people often? I have to imagine those are 
perhaps some of the more challenging conversations you have with your patients. Because if I've had a lifetime of eating, and now all of a sudden you're telling me, you can't eat X, Y, and Z, and I want you to eat a salad. It's one thing to occasionally eat a salad, but to tell me every day, this is what you need to eat, and you need to cut out whatever it is, red meat, or you know, perhaps dairy or something else. How do those conversations go, and how challenging is it to get patients to be compliant? Well, it's a very frequent question. What should I eat? And I'm personally very reluctant to ban food from somebody's diet for the rest of their life. So what I usually tell folks is have a baseline of healthy eating. If you want to eat something, eat it, recognizing that you may have consequences for 24 to 48 hours afterwards. So it's really just going back to personal choice and personal responsibility. I personally really don't restrict people from anything long term. But just know it will happen. It's personal note. I'm lactose intolerant. It took a while. It didn't really take a while. It just became very evident. You eat ice cream. Guess what reaction you have when I was younger? And it was like, oh, okay. Now, do I still eat ice cream? Yes, because I like it. Do I know what's going to happen? Yes. So does that conversation happen all the time? You have to be prepared for the consequences kind of thing. Absolutely. And that's something that I share my experience with patients as well, where, you know, my mother had told me that I really didn't drink milk from a young age. And it was really only in fellowship during my training where I realized that I probably have some degree of lactose intolerance. And even now, I rarely touch milk. So that was sort of a self-correction, if you will. But other things too, you know, here's a, there's a great Thai place here in Bloomington. Until recently, I could eat it without any problems. Now if I eat it, I know I need to be home and not going on a road trip afterwards. And so I just know that that's the consequence of right. eating that. That's my choice to enjoy that, but also recognize that there might be something there that doesn't agree with me. That brings up another good point. Can all of this change as we age? Because I feel like the way I could eat in my 20s and 30s is far different than now. Is that one of those other expectations that it's just part of the aging process too? Well, like uh, a mentor of mine used to say, a college student can eat Tupperware and have a bowel movement, no problem. So there is some truth to that. Like everything that evolves, your gut microbiome also evolves. I've had patients who have enjoyed seafood their whole life, and one day they become allergic to it. I can't explain that. I don't know what triggers that. So things do evolve. I think it's important to look at really, again, just focusing on what you eat, but also recognizing that it's multifactorial. It's not just what you eat. There is a genetic component to it. There's a environmental component to it. And so speaking on those two, genetics, I often will ask any history of digestive conditions in your family. And more often than not, yep, my dad has irritable bowel or, oh, my mom had constipation all her life or something. There's something there. And so, you know, we're not clear on the genetic transmission of that, but it's uh, important to know that that could be a role as well. And then with environmental I think being over-sanitized is uh, something that's had an unintended consequence. And so one of my mentors, Dr. Robin Chutkin at Georgetown, has done a lot of work on this particular topic where she's talked about the diet that we eat in the Western world versus what we eat in Africa or parts of Europe. There is a clear distinction on certain digestive conditions. 
very, very few conditions of inflammatory bowel disease occur in Africa because you grew up with such a strong gastrointestinal immunologic system that you developed a lot of antibodies and things, whereas in Scandinavia or Western Europe or the United States, there's a very high incidence of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And we think that that's due partially to the environmental factors. The other thing people like is, I want a pill to fix what's going on. You know, everybody thinks that they just, you're going to give me a pill and it's going to cure me. And that's kind of the society we live in. I'm going to come to you and come on, doc, give me a pill and then I'm going to be good. That's not good for us, is it? Well, what I tell people is that there are quick fixes sometimes. There's no greater example of that than heartburn. People want to eat late at night. They want to eat things that taste good, which are often oil or fried or fatty, but they take their omeprazole or Nexium in the morning, and then they can do that. That's a simple one. And uh, you're starting to see, though, a lot of patients actually take responsibility and saying, I don't want to be on a pharmaceutical agent. I would actually rather do some more digging and do some lifestyle modification in order to help my symptoms. So it's uh, across the spectrum, but lately... I've seen people much more determined to uh, tackle some of the issues after we've talked about it in a more holistic manner without resorting to pharmaceuticals. Is there a generation difference too? Because I think of my grandparents, my parents, they weren't going to the doctor. They were fine. I'll handle this on my own. I've, I've dealt with tougher stuff where I feel like sometimes the younger generation is more prone. They will come more quickly to a physician to be seen. So do you have to deal with some of the generational issues in here along the way? There's definitely a difference. And you look at demographics that way, and I don't consider that to be a bad thing. I think coming to the doctor sooner is a good thing in terms of diagnosis, workup, because there's a flip to not coming sooner. I've seen several cases of young women being diagnosed with hemorrhoids and irritable bowel syndrome and they see me five or 10 years later, we do a colonoscopy and they have Crohn's disease. Mm. And you're thinking, gosh, you know, that's something totally treatable, you know, if you'd gotten to us sooner. So, and then the younger patients are much more synergistic in their care. What I've noticed is that it's more of a shared decision-making process. Previous generations are much more, you're the doctor, which, you know, I have to pull back a little bit and then I'll say, well, I'm the doctor, but it's your body. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this synergistically together on how we can go forward. Anything I'm missing here on this whole brain-gut connection and what we need to be thinking on moving forward? Well, I think we've talked a lot about diet. I think it's important, but I also think it's important to recognize that there are structural anatomical differences in people with, say, irritable bowel syndrome. For example, we think they have amplification of the signals that go from the gut to the spinal cord. We're not sure why. We think that there's parts of their brain that are hyperfunctioning. The pain part of the brain actually hyperfunctions and is more responsive to pain. So, for example, irritable bowel syndrome. We all are current always we're always digesting, right? And what I tell my patients is that the first six inches of your GI tract and the last six inches of your GI tract, you can tell what's going on and you have control over. And so Everyone listening can think about that for a second. But in between, you don't know what's going on, and you don't have control. So what's happening there? Well, food is moving. Your organs are squeezing. 
things are being absorbed, things are being secreted. All those activities are normal digestive function. But somebody with irritable bowel syndrome will perceive those as pain and bloating. And we don't know why certain people perceive what's normal digestive function and activity as symptoms. So you know, we start from the gut. Is it the food you're eating? Then we go to, is it the spinal cord? And I'm not talking about a spinal cord lesion or issue, just there's some kind of amplification of the signal from the gut to the spinal cord. And then finally, from the spinal cord to the brain. You know, is there something in your brain, and again, not necessarily a tumor, but for whatever reason, you are genetically or environmentally predisposed to perceiving pain much more so than the other person. And I'll give you an example. And everyone listening can try this. Take a sip of water or coffee, whatever you're drinking, and it's hot or cold. And so start thinking about where in your chest do you lose the, sens the sensation of it being hot or cold? So normally, it would be your neck area. Most people point to their neck. At that point, you can't really tell. Someone with IBS will feel the hot or cold all the way down. And it's very uncomfortable. And it's then it causes another multitude. Like you said, it's triggering all these other things. It's kind of like a waterfall effect, isn't it? Absolutely. And so when your small bowel is contracting, when your colon is contracting, which are completely normal things. And again, for that majority of the time, we don't feel it. But someone with irritable bowel syndrome will feel that as spasm, as bloating, as pain. And so going forward, a lot of the medications or therapies for irritable bowel syndrome are looking at the microbiome, but they're also looking at the brain. You know, how can we potentially target the brain for people who have done everything else. So the microbiome is just such a fascinating cutting edge of GI, you know. And like you mentioned earlier, we do think mood is involved. We think that, and, you know, everyone listening, raise your hand, you know, you eat something and you feel that, ugh, afterwards. Right. You kind of know when you either overdid it or you ate something that you know won't agree. Um, and everyone knows that when you eat better for a couple of days, you feel better. It's because your digestive tract isn't working so hard. It's not breaking down the 16 different chemicals in that cliff bar that you ate. And that's where we will leave this discussion with the bottom line. If you are having any issues, they need to come to someone like yourself or one of your partners because there are answers. It may take a while and the path may be circuitous at times. And you may not necessarily like the path if, I'm, if you tell them they have to remove their favorite treat for a while. But there are answers out there and we're gaining on them all the time. I will tell you, a lot of people, once you've excluded malignancy or something serious, a lot of their symptoms go away. Yeah, stress. I mean, just the stressful thinking, I don't know what's going on, adds to it. If we're going to talk about mood, it's all connected, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, if you do upper scope and lower scope and everything's fine, the biopsies are okay, a lot of times people's symptoms will improve because of the mental reassurance. And and it's just, it's unfortunate that people delay so long when it could be preventable. That's the other message. Get there and get seen and get it taken care of. Dr. Omar Kokar, thank you so much. A very fascinating conversation. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Health Accelerated, brought to you by OSF Healthcare. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also find links to any of our episodes on the OSF Newsroom at newsroom.osfhealthcare.org.